You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you're able to remain standing, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to look to this opening paragraph in the book of Hebrews to begin our Advent season. If you're just joining us or you don't have a Bible, we will have the text on the screen for you. Just four verses in this opening paragraph, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. I believe I've shared this quote with you before, a guy named Richard Sibbs, a 16th century Puritan. But he once wrote this, quote, The very beholding of Christ is a transforming sight. The very beholding of Christ is a transforming sight. When we see the love of God in the gospel and the love of Christ giving himself for us, This will transform us to love God. As Pastor Alec prayed, beholding is becoming. We become like the things we worship. If money, the love of money is the thing that you value above all, you will become like the thing you value. If money is your greatest love, you will become like a transactional commodity. You will pass through human hands as a means to some other end. We become what we behold. If you value vocational or academic achievement more than anything else, you will become like a fleeting accolade, celebrated today but forgotten tomorrow. We become like the things we behold. We're changed by them. And so this Advent season, our prayer is that we would be transformed more into the image of Christ as we behold him in all of his glorious splendor. Advent is a Latin word that simply means coming. It means arrival. 
So when we're talking about celebrating Advent, we, we are talking about the celebration of the first coming of Jesus Christ. That is the second member of the Holy Trinity has put on human flesh, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. When we celebrate Advent, we are celebrating the coming of Christ. We are celebrating the mission of God to rescue his people through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so it is our supreme desire to behold the work of the Son, to revel in his radiance, and to enjoy him as the supreme delight of our souls. So this morning, the first Sunday of Advent, we are going to look at the radiance of the sun. We're going to look to the radiance of the sun. And then the next four Sundays through December, we're going to look at the four songs that show up in and around the birth of Christ, that nativity. We're going to look at those four songs that come bursting forth as a result of the birth of Jesus Christ. This morning... I've said this before as we've opened up the book of Hebrews. There's, there's no introduction to Hebrews. There's no pleasantries. There's no formal introduction. There's no, hi there, I'm so-and-so writing this letter to you. The book of Hebrews doesn't open that way. Instead, like a rocket ship, it just blasts off into orbit around the sun. And so this morning, we're going to take an orbit around the sun and discover the radiance of his glory. Our text this morning is an opening paragraph uh, to actually, which was a sermon to begin with. The book of Hebrews was written as a sermon. It was to be preached by a preacher. And it was written to a group of Christians in the first century who were fearing for their lives. A Roman emperor by the name of Nero had blamed the Christians for a catastrophic fire that burnt the city of Rome to the ground. And most historians will conclude that it was Nero himself that lit the fire. But in order for Nero to escape the responsibility himself, he blamed the Christians for the fire. The result of this blaming was a decade-long persecution of the church. Men, women, and children were burned alive, were crucified, were fed to wild animals. It was a terrifying time to be a Christian. And this letter, the letter of Hebrews which was first a sermon, was written in order to provoke courage in the hearts of believers. Courage because they are now tempted to revert back to Judaism, to revert back to a system or a religion where there wasn't persecution at that time. Their temptation was to abandon their Christian faith in order to escape imminent death at the hands of Nero. And so throughout this letter, this sermon, the book of Hebrews, the author is preaching a sermon and he is saying, don't flinch, don't shrink back, don't retreat from the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't retreat from the gospel from Christ himself. Jesus is enough for you. He's enough for you when things are good and he's enough for you when things are bad. Hold the line. 
is the, is the sermon that the author preaches throughout the book of Hebrews. And you'll notice something throughout this letter that's remarkable. In order to combat paralyzing fears that had gripped his Christian audience, the author of Hebrews doesn't begin his letter by drawing attention to the great injustices being done by Rome. He doesn't. He doesn't draw their attention. In fact, very rarely does the author ever address the current struggles of his readers. There's no mention of Nero. There's no mention of Rome in the entire letter. Instead, listen, the author's time in this sermon is devoted to developing a vision of Jesus Christ. So massive and so comprehensive that this vision of Christ would begin to transform the way they viewed themselves and their current circumstances. In other words, the author of Hebrews believed that the very beholding of Christ is a transforming sight. Now listen, there is no problem at all with lamenting evil and injustice in the world. There is no problem with asking the Lord to change circumstances or to heal disease or to stop impending violence. Those requests are right and good and sometimes the Lord grants them. But more often, when we ask the Lord to change a circumstance so that we can thrive and flourish, more often the Lord doesn't change the circumstance, but he changes us. What brings more glory to his name? The tearing down of kingdoms so that his people can flourish or his people flourishing despite the hardships of the kingdom? Brothers and sisters, in the end, God will remove all evil and injustice in the world. There is coming a day when the manifold effects of sin in persons and in societies will be no more. And all God's people said, amen. And although we long for that day and we wait and we pray for its soon arrival, the hope of the gospel is that we can right now celebrate another arrival, another day that has already happened in human history, the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. And it's this vision of him that we seek this Advent season. This is who the author of Hebrews thinks his beleaguered and tired and fearful congregation needs to see. A vision of Christ, again, so massive and so comprehensive that it would begin to transform the way they viewed everything else. And so, that is our aim, is to have a comprehensive, massive, big view of Jesus Christ this Advent season. Should the Lord change our circumstances, we say yes and amen. But will he change us as we view him in all his glory? Yes, he will. Guaranteed. So with that, we're just going to move through these first four verses and, and get a Christology, a view of Christ, and ask that his radiance would warm our hearts this morning. Look at verse 1 with me. Long ago... 
At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The very first thing, the very first thing the author of Hebrews wants us to understand is that our God speaks. That is to say, our God has not remained silent or distant or hidden. Instead, the God of the Bible reveals himself. He stoops down to his creation and he opens up and he reveals who he is. Our God speaks. Isaiah 61 verse 1, God says through the prophets, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Our God does not keep silent and he will not be quiet. He has spoken. But notice the author of Hebrews wants us to know that although God does speak, he has not revealed himself all at once. Nor has he always revealed himself in the same way. But as verse 1 says, at many times and in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. In the wisdom of God, this means, beloved, he has elected, God has elected prophets, spokesmen, to speak for him. At many times and in many ways, God has used Moses as we move through the, the Genesis account. Moses, he's used Deborah, Jeremiah, Amos, Malachi, a host of spokesmen to to prophesy, to speak to his people. He's spoken to them in Jerusalem. He's spoken to them in exile, in captivity. At many times and in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. But look at verse two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Notice the significant contrast in God's relationship now with the spokesman. In the past, God spoke through prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his own son. Notice the change in relationship. The prophets were important and they were many, they were manifold. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his very own son. Another writes, quote, the text does not move from multiple messengers in the past to now multiple messengers in the present. Instead, multiplicity gives way to singularity, the singularity of God's communication in the Son. In other words, there were many prophets, but there is only one Son. There were many spokesmen, but there is only one begotten of the Father. The Gospel of John opens similarly to the book of Hebrews. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the Logos, the explanation of God. In the beginning was the explanation of God. The word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14 of John chapter one, 
John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What does this mean? This means, beloved friends, that Jesus Christ is God's final word to humanity. Jesus Christ is God's final and decisive word to humanity. There were many prophets, but there is only one son. And we see, you see now what the author of Hebrews is doing to his fearful, beleaguered, tired audience in the first century. He's putting steel in the spine of those attempted to abandon Christ. And he's saying things may be scary. Things are scary. But I want to lift your chin to look at the Son, the Son of God, the final word from God, the decisive word from God has come. We don't need to look for another. We don't need another prophet. We don't need a new revelation. We have the final and complete revelation because God has spoken through his son. And then he, continu- he continues. Look at the first part of verse three. He, the son of God, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word imprint here is the word for character in the Greek. It's only used once in the Bible and it's right here. It's the word character. So verse three could be more accurately translated. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact character of his nature. Simply put, if you want to know what God is like, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, what is God like? You, maybe you, you felt that hound of heaven after you and you, you, when all the lights are out and it's, you're tired and you're on your bed and nobody, no, no media is pumping into your brain. You're like, what is God like? What does he want? What does he find pleasure in? What does he think about? Hebrews chapter one, verse three, simply put says, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Jesus is the complete unpacking of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the exact character of God himself. That's why Jesus would say something profound in John chapter 1 or 14, verse 9. Jesus would say, whoever has seen the Father has seen me. Those are the kind of words that got Jesus killed. If you've seen the Father, Jesus says, you've seen me. Or whoever sees me has seen the Father. Paul would say in Colossians 1.19, for in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus is the full explanation of God, the exact imprint of his nature. But don't miss the first part of verse three. The first part of verse three, Jesus is also the radiance of God's glory. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God. That word radiance, another time it only shows up once in the Bible. The word radiance shows up just once and it's right here in Hebrews chapter 1. Richard Phillips writes this. As hot and brilliant as the sun is in the heavens, we would never see it or feel its warmth without the radiating beams that come to earth. So it is with God the Son who is the radiance of his glory. Without the sun, we remain in the dark regarding the glory of God. Jesus Christ, in other words, is the be- he's the radiating beams that come from the glory of God. As the sun rays beam down to earth and we see its light and we feel its warmth, so too is the sun. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Paul the Apostle says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, that we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That means, beloved, that Jesus Christ is not a mere reflection of God's glory. Instead, Jesus is the radiance of his glory. He is the heat and the light behind the glory of God. This is why all of heaven erupts when Jesus Christ is born a baby. When light has pierced the darkness, all of heaven erupts with joy at the profound mystery that God would come to humanity. The radiance of the glory of God has broken in to human, humanity's darkness. When Moses was near God at Sinai, his face was glowing. Remember that? When Moses came down from the giving of the law, his face was, was beaming. His face was glowing because he was reflecting the radiance of God's glory. Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is that radiance. Moses' face, in a real sense, was reflecting the brilliant light which came through the pre-incarnate Christ. But unlike how the reflection of that radiance began to fade in Moses' face over time, the radiance of Christ will never fade. Instead, the brilliant light of Christ's radiance will furnish light for all of eternity. John in Revelation says that the glory of God will fill the heavens, will fill all the new heavens and the new earth with light forever. There's no need for a S-O-N sun because the Son of God and his radiance will be our light. So he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact character of his nature. Finally, we look at the last half of verse 3 and verse 4. The author of Hebrews says, After making purification for sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on High. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now listen, if it was the job of the prophet in the old covenant, if it was the job of the prophet to speak for God, then it was the job of the priest in the temple to make purification for sins. God... 
we learn from Genesis to Revelation, God does not and God will not tolerate sin. Sin must be dealt with. It must be paid for. And the wages of sin is death. So the priest in the old covenant, the priest would come in and would make sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. The priest was someone who would stand before God as a representative of God's people and he would make purification for sins by the shedding of blood. The blood of bulls and goats and other animals. And this was happening constantly in the temple because humanity never stopped sinning. So the sacrifices of bulls and goats would continue consistently and constantly. Blood was continually flowing out of the temple. In fact, there were no seats in the temple. There was no chairs in the temple. There's no need for a chair because the work was never finished. You would never sit down on your shift. There was always work to be done until Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the high priest would come in once a year and then the priests under him would come in daily to the temple to make sacrifices because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of the gospel in Christ is the finality of our sins. An eternal blood is now spilt. A great high priest has entered the holy places. And so the author of Hebrews says that after making purification for sins with his own blood, Jesus sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The work of redemption had been finished. So Jesus is the final and decisive word from God. He is the exact character of his nature. He is the radiance of his glory. And he is both our great high priest and our eternal sacrifice. Look at verse 4 again as we close. Verse 4, now the author says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Beloved, there is power and there is beauty in the name of Jesus Christ. He has inherited a name that is more excellent than any other name that is named in heaven and on earth. On that first Advent morning, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his 
name Jesus, Yeshua, God who brings salvation. His name shall be Jesus. Why will his name be Jesus? His name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. There is power and salvation in his name. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. There is power and beauty in the name of Jesus. That is, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has, beloved, in short, inherited an excellent name. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the Anointed One and the Head of the Church. He is the Bread of Life. He is the light of the world, the gate for the sheep, and he is the good shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true vine. He is also the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the true and better Adam. He is the mediator of a new covenant. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Oh, he has inherited an excellent name and he is coming again in his first coming. You remember this. We'll celebrate this in East, at Easter. He comes riding a baby donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. In all his humility, he is a king, but he comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. In his second advent, his second coming, he is not riding a donkey. He is riding a great white horse. And out of his mouth comes a sword, and he will take for himself what is rightfully his. Oh, he has inherited a great name. His name is Jesus. My prayer this morning, our prayer this morning is that our hearts would be warmed. Our hearts would be melted by the radiance of the sun. That this Advent season, we would take an orbit around the son of God and our faces would be warmed by his presence that we would not look at a baby in the manger the same anymore, that along with the angels as the heavens were rent in two, we would say, glory to God in the highest. This God has come to us. He has come for us to live the life that we could not live. And he dies the death that we should have died. But thanks be to God because his name is unconquerable. He rises from the grave three days later. This is Advent. This is the coming of Christ. This is our greatest hope in life and death. And so, may our beholding of Christ this Advent season become a transforming sight. May we become more like him as we behold him.